Welcome to This American Life, and I'm your host, Tom Tanneke. I record this episode, as with every other, on unceded Indigenous lands. And I want to acknowledge, before I move on, that it always was and it always will be Aboriginal land, and to pay my respects to traditional owners and elders, past and present. The keen-eared amongst you would have detected a few errors. Of course, it's not This American Life, it's the pork and feed the birds. And I'm not your host, I'm the virus's host the coronavirus's host. I have been travelling in the broken down Plague Hulk hull of the Ruby Princess around the shores of Australia, dropping off the virus through an army of bats that I control with my hands and the Pangolin King, um, who, very large, sort of really, really large Pangolin who, um, who, you know, sort of has the virus in its body. Uh, it's my steed, really. Um, and we've been doing that for the past few months now. Really good to see that the virus is picking up in Victoria and New South Wales. Uh, I hope you're all doing well in spite of that. Um, I take time out from that role to, to record a little political podcast every couple of weeks. I have noticed a, a change, I suppose, in the, the, the role of this podcast for me. To me, what it really is about, the pork and feed the birds, is uh, fringe or radical politics of all stripes. Whether it be politics that I like and support and identify with, or the stuff that I think is um, abhorrent, or the stuff that I just think is hilarious and kooky. You know, the act of Pokemon hunting, as I always describe it, which is looking for weirdos. Long-term listeners will know that I used to do an activist gig guide. And that's pretty fucking hard at the moment. To me, that represents a good opportunity to find out more about all different kinds of movements, not just the ones that we stand against or the ones that we're a part of, but also the ones that we uh, perhaps adjacent to or should be adjacent to, but for whatever reason, don't know enough about. That's why I've spoken to Betty Mill in this episode. I've been around the anti-fascist scene um, because she does work in a variety of different scenes. However, I saw her do a speech some time ago at a conference for animal rights activists on the subject of consistent anti-oppression. I wanted to talk to Betty about that, but I also wanted to talk as someone who's not part of those movements and ask questions, frankly, about things. Where, where have we all gone wrong? How can we work better together? Because those things are, are what is of interest to me. And that is a thread that's begun since the start of the podcast. So it's in that spirit that I've spoken to Betty Mill. And also, by the way, in the link description for this episode, I will be placing some of the links that Betty has talked about during our conversation, which begins now. I'm here with Betty, who's an animal rights activist and a mate. Betty, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Good. Good. I'm good. Thank you so much for um, coming on The Poor Can Feed the Birds. Um, Betty, you're, you, as I said, you're an animal rights activist, but... I came to know you around other spheres of activism around anti-fascist and refugee rights scenes, um, at which you're a staunch and dedicated person, and that's why we're mates. But can you, uh, you know, obviously we're here to talk about the world surrounding animal rights. Can you tell me about your journey into animal rights activism? How did you get to where you are? Um. So I went vegan, like, early 2016 and I didn't get involved with any kind of act activism for quite a while after that, probably like a year and a half. 
Um, I remember the first, the first like activism event I went to for anything was just, was going to an invasion day march. And I just went on my own. I didn't know anyone, wasn't connected with anyone in the scene. And then later that year, uh, I got involved with some animal rights stuff. So, um, I basically joined like a street outreach group. So, um, to explain what that is, uh, We did a couple of things. So we used to do something called chalking, which was like we would be writing like pro-animal rights messages on the street and sometimes we have conversations with people. Uh, Sometimes people come up and ask about it and we might have some like leaflets or something to give them for more information. We um, also were doing the thing where we have the TVs showing footage from inside farms and slaughterhouses and it's all like Australian footage and talking to people about that. Just like oh, hang on, is that the the people with the guy Fawkes mask? Oh, yeah. So, um, the people with the guy Fawkes mask are anonymous for the voiceless, and I never yeah. actually joined them, um, because we'll get to them later. I think we'll, <laughs> we'll get talk, to we'll talk them, about later. them later. We've got um, things to talk about. Yeah, but like at the time that I sort of joined up, there was already an alternative made to anonymous for the voiceless, which gets called AV for short. So if I if I refer to AV, that's what I'm talking about. Um, okay. Yeah, so I was doing that kind of activism for a while with this alternative group, and it was a good way to get started in it because, you know, it's sort of something that's, like, open for anyone to join. But I sort of was, like, starting to, I guess, question that as a method. So I, I wanted to get into more stuff than just doing that. So after, like, kind of being on the scene for a while, because I guess you have to build up trust with people before they'll, um, I guess, invite you to come along to uh, things that require more security culture, you know? Uh, yeah. So, so later on, I started to get involved with more direct action kind of stuff. So that um, involved doing things like slaughterhouse shutdowns or like occupations, um, and yeah, I guess like disrupting sort of like point of production business. And uh, yeah, maybe I won't go into like too much detail with that stuff. Um, yeah, it's a tough thing, isn't it? Because there's some of the stuff that I've seen and heard about, like, you know, from, from that AR activists get up to in those spaces. Uh, I just really admire it for how staunch and brazen a lot of it is, you know what I mean? And I don't, you know, because honestly I don't see that kind of equivalent in, in many other fields, maybe in some respects in, in sometimes in refugee rights actions. But I just, yeah. you know, I have from, from a distance noticed, you know, how, you know, I admire it. I admire the tenacity of, of uh, activists in those spaces. But at the same time, we can't exactly lay out the A to Z of what happens in spaces where there's people out to get you, including coppers and the like. With these, um, these kind of, this particular type of action I'm talking about is we're usually pretty overt about it because often like, you know, facilities like slaughterhouses and factory farms are kind of relying on operating in secrecy. Like they don't really want people to see what's going on inside. Um, I, I remember the first time that I went inside a slaughterhouse was a chicken slaughterhouse. And this was as part of an action. And Like, you know, I had seen footage from in these places before, but like nothing could have prepared me for actually being in there. Like it it was very um, intense and like. 
So they're really grim spaces, they, eh? They really, really are. And I think, like, you just see, um, I don't know, to me it's kind of like a symbol of, like, the worst of capitalism, you know, seeing yeah. um, just hundreds of chickens, like, on a conveyor belt uh, coming through, uh, you know, I'm I'm not going to, like, describe in graphic detail what's happening here, but, like, you can imagine. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it's that that was, like, a very confronting experience the first time that I saw that in person. So, yeah, um, so I got into doing some stuff like that and yep. um, basically I started to get very frustrated with the street outreach group I was part of for a lot of reasons and so eventually I ended up leaving that group um because you know we had a lot of attempts at resolving the problems within the group but I think in the end it just seemed like it wasn't possible so I left that group can I ask what what kind of we're talking about disputes within the group so the group kind of like split in half and I would say that our politics weren't aligned in the end Mm. because it's like we all had this kind of anti-speciesist politics but in terms of other issues like sexism, racism, transphobia, et cetera, like we did not align on those issues. And okay. yeah. that was um, something that, you know, a lot of us really tried with this group, but we, we really wanted it to work because, like I said, it was supposed to be an alternative to Anonymous for the Voiceless, but it was supposed to be a more progressive alternative, but it didn't really end up like that. And um yeah, we definitely tried, but in the end, like, it just wasn't going to work. So um, also I, I was, for a while, I guess I had been, like, questioning this street outreach method of activism, and um, I'm still not, like, quite sure how I feel about it now. I don't personally okay. participate in it anymore. After After leaving that animal rights group, I was interested to get involved with more kind of other stuff. So it was through mm. through some people that I knew um, from animal rights that I ended up getting involved with like the anti-fascist scene and, um, yep. yeah, other, other movements. And so for a while I was mostly uh, – I, I wasn't really doing any stuff with the animal rights movement because I guess I was kind of in a position where I felt like I didn't know how to be part of that movement. Yeah, if things hadn't worked that it got you up to where you were and it had ended up in a communication breakdown with a the group, then you, you just what, you just have to press pause for a while, don't you? Yeah, and that's not to say, like, of course, um, you know, animal rights and animal liberation, like this is part of my politics and I still believe yep. in, the, in the goals of this movement, but I wasn't, it just wasn't working with a lot of the people that I was working with and um, – it felt like a very big task to try and, uh, I guess, change the culture within the movement. So, mm. yeah, I wanted to get involved with some other stuff. And so I did do that. And for a while I was I was mostly doing, I guess, anti-fascist stuff and yeah. like related things. And um, uh, over over time, like, I guess I started to have frustrations with, with that scene as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah there's, always, there's always something. As I said at the start, that's where I met you. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, because you have been dedicated in other fields, you've tried to do other things, you know, you're not, you can't be tagged as being part of one scene. And and so in that context of me knowing you as being, uh, you know, originally an animal rights activist who was doing some very staunch and dedicated things in anti-fascism, I saw you uh, do a talk, you had uploaded a, a talk that you'd done at um, an animal rights activism convention and you were discussing the subject of consistent anti-oppression Um which you know I enjoyed, and and the way that you talked about it resonated with me. Can you tell me about what consistent anti-oppression means to you? Yeah. Okay. So um, that talk I did last year. So that was at a, an animal rights conference, as you said, and I think it was kind of like um, my attempt to like speak to the animal rights movement about the issues that I'm seeing within the movement. And I wanted to talk about how my experience from like being in anti-fascist spaces and other movements. So the title of my talk was Forming Alliances with Other Movements. And that's kind of been the focus of my activism for the past couple of years, I guess. Um, yeah, trying to trying to bridge these movements because I think we have more in common than not, I, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. So consistent anti-oppression so the terminology that we use has evolved over the years. So we used to call it intersectional veganism, which basically like refers to a political view that recognizes the interconnectedness of all forms of oppression. Okay. But we moved away from using that term because intersectionality is, uh, it's like specific it's a specific tool used to describe the experience of black women and how, yeah. how their experience of racism is compounded by uh, simultaneously experiencing sexism. So it doesn't really make sense to apply this to veganism. But like that said, we still um, wanted a more expansive way to describe our politics that's not just vegan. Yeah, you didn't want to prioritise it, even though that might have been the conduit to activism for, for many of you obviously, you know, in animal rights, veganism or what have you, didn't necessarily want to prioritise that origin more than any other field of activism, I suppose, hey? Um, yeah, so I guess it's about like having a um, like a, a holistic, a broad perspective of, I guess, anti-oppression. So the, yeah. the consistent anti-oppression, um, so there was a thing created by a group of vegans called the Bill of Consistent Anti-Oppression. And it, this was basically trying to give like a framework to combat oppressive behavior and oppressive activism that was happening within the animal rights movement. Um, so yeah, if people like are interested to look that up, there's a website for consistent anti-oppression and it has 12 points and, um, yeah, so sort of like goes over, I guess, um, you know, the ways that animal rights relates to other struggles but also even so the animal rights movement still has issues with speciesism you know like it's kind of like being anti-speciesist is like being anti-racist it's not like a point that you reach it's something that you kind of strive for you know what I mean these days I prefer to use the term radical veganism to describe my own politics so ra mm -hmm. radical meaning from the root. So it addresses animal exploitation and all the issues that surround that and how it over overlaps with other forms of oppression. So I guess, okay. th yeah, that's what it means to me. That's how I would describe my own politics. Yeah, yeah. And so is 
being consistently anti-oppression, and so that is to 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 apply the same standards to all these different fields of, I suppose, you know, uh, activism or you know whether it be animal rights or human rights in the field of you know anti-fascism. Is that as a framework an encouragement to other non-vegan? activists to get involved in AR or is it an encouragement to AR activists to be more consistent or intersectional or whatever you want to call it or is it kind of supposed to be both? Um, so I, I would say like we're not necessarily encouraging anyone to like change what movement they're part of or to change the focus okay. of their activism because I, I yeah. do think that we need people focusing on animal rights specifically like you know animals need to have their own movement but in my opinion any single issue struggle is going to fail so if if we're trying to look at this through a single issue lens so it's like we have to make sure the activism we're doing is supporting other struggles rather than like throwing other marginalized groups under the bus with our activism so, you know, um, animal rights activism can be done in a way that is anti-racist and, and anti-sexist. Uh, and so w- when I'm talking about single-issue struggles, I think that um, the animal rights movement is an example, but I think maybe, like, another example I could give is the feminist movement. So if you're just looking at single-issue feminism, that usually ends up being, like, white liberal f- feminism that ignores yeah. intersectionality and ignores, like, um, Oh, you know, it often might ignore uh, like other marginalized genders that aren't just cis women. And so that also ends up being a problem. Yeah. Well, so, you know, and Betty, I've seen you walk the walk <laughs> as you're not just talking the talk. Like you uh, you have been, as you know, as an activist and people around you as well, I have noticed have been very, very, um, yeah, very frontline and staunch in, 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 in uh, anti-fascism and in other fields. But um, so, but I really wanted to talk to you and I guess one of the, the, the I wanted to talk in layperson's terms with you about what, the times when it goes wrong. And, you know, the communication mm-hmm. breakdowns that happen between animal rights activists and other activist scenes because they happen again and again. And I always sort of, you know, I, uh, just it deflates me inside every time because I'm like I always see a missed opportunity for very dedicated groups of activists to unite on issues. Like, for example, there was the IMARC blockade last year, um, anti-mining activism really or environmental activism, and it did promise to be a strong union and yeah it was to a degree but I remember that an issue came up over a barbecue that was to be held so animal rights saw that you know as in them cooking animal flesh there as a running contrary to their principles for obvious reasons you know and as I recall it they said if you don't change the barbecue we can't participate and again just to me, such a massive fucking shame that it wasn't adjusted and that it couldn't be adjusted because you know, if, if nothing else, and there's other reasons, but you know, it's it's a it's a waste of a potential union. You know, so do, do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. So um, I wasn't actually involved in the organising of that, but when when I saw the event go up and I saw that there were um, animal rights groups that were like um, being part of the organising team as well, like that, I, I was really excited about that because I'm thinking, oh, yeah. finally, like <laughs> we're um 
Because I think that animal rights tends to be this issue that people sort of like don't want to think about. They want to put it in this little box and just and think it's separate from everything else. So um, I'm not like exactly sure about the details of what went wrong. Yeah. But I will say that I think for environmental activists to be supporting animal agriculture feels like a massive contradiction um, mm. if if you consider that the role that animal agriculture plays in uh, environmental destruction and deforestation and all of this, like it doesn't make sense to be supporting animal agriculture in environmental activism. So like I, I can yeah. understand like it is um, it is a perspective of animal oppression as well. But like I just think it, it seems very contradictory to um, to environmental activism. So I'm not sure like what else I can say on the IMARC thing because I don't know all yeah. the details about what went down. Um, oh, yeah, who knows, hey? But, but yeah, yeah, it's just one of those things that I just see, you know, just one of those examples of times where a communication breakdown happens and you're like, oh, that's a fucking shame. So, yeah. so you know what I mean? Yeah, like, for sure. Um, something that I think is a bit of an issue that I guess I see like non-vegans doing sometimes is we shouldn't be conflating traditional hunting with the animal agriculture industry and the government um, wild animal slaughter industries. They're not the same thing. And I think that lumping them in together is um, sort of like a dangerous road to go down. So, Okay, so that's that's a good, yeah, I'm glad you raised that because, you know, one thing that gets levelled, I have seen activists who are not AR leverage this against, you know, uh, vegans or AR activists is to say, you know, are you trying to tell Indigenous peoples that, that they can't uh, deploy, you know, can't employ tr- traditional hunting methods, you know what I mean? Are you trying to suggest that those Indigenous practices are uh, on the same level as animal agriculture? So you're saying that, you, that, that that doesn't have to be the case. Yeah, it does. It definitely doesn't. And, like, I would say, in like, that's not my lane to comment on, you know. I'm going to talk yeah. about, but I, I'll say there are animal rights ag- activists from many different cultures all over the world, including Indigenous cultures, and some of them are, like, you know, that that's their um, – they will be working on these issues in their own communities and I'm going to be working on these issues in my communities and I'm going to be looking at um, what people like me have, uh, I guess the way that, um, uh, what am I trying to say here? So the way that white people have um, introduced animals to this country um or to this continent, I should say. So, like, animal agriculture is something that has been used and is being used as a tool of colonisation all over the world. Like, it's a very yeah. effective way to take over large portions of Indigenous land. And we saw that, like, last year with the Amazon fires, you know, that was clearing land for the beef industry. And yeah, so we're talking about mass-scale commercialised animal agriculture here. Yeah, just to, just to yeah, clarify. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And um, like the this continent, the forests were burnt here too, as well. Land clearing to make way for animal agriculture. Um, you know, you look at the um, the USA. The colonisers there were cold 
cowboys, you know, like that's, that's what they brought. <laughs> there's, yeah, yeah. And um, there's a lot of ties with um, the, the animal agriculture and nationalism. Um, you know, like I remember recently, just as an example, there was like, um, I think four and 20 released like a vegan pie for the first time. And, um, Bob Catter made a video about that <laughs> saying that it was, yeah, he didn't like that. He didn't like it though. No, he said it was very un-Australian and we, you know, we need to be supporting Aussie beef. And I think about things like, um, the campaigns for, oh, you know, you need to eat lamb on Australia day. That's what Australians do. And yeah, yeah there, there's um, nationalists love animal agriculture uh, and, you know, they, um, they've they like sort of created a lot of the uh, quote-unquote Australian identity around that, you know. It's a fucking real shame, isn't it? Because if you think about the impact that, say, cattle have had being introduced into Australia, you know, depleting so much of the lot, the the inland waterways here, ruining the soft soil of Australia because, you know, they've got hooves that aren't really, you know, made for the soft soil here. There's been a catastrophic environmental impact of, of, of you know, industrial, I guess, animal agriculture here. And, and yet here we are acting as though it's some... Um, patriotic thing <laughs> yeah I mean hoofed animals never should have been brought to this continent they um you know like they they've done we sort of I think we can't um it can't really be overstated how much damage hoofed animals have done to the landscape here yeah and so that's yeah. why I, like um you know when I'm talking about the overlaps between you, you know the goals of the animal rights movement and other things so Animal agriculture is a tool of, of colonization. It's it's a tool of environmental destruction. And so I don't think that it's consistent for environmental activists to be supporting it and defending it. But I see a lot of them do defend it. And yeah, it's very yeah. frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Because you think to yourself that um, vegan or not, dedicated AR activist or not, but given all these intersections, given what we've just been talking about, about the catastrophic impact of, of, of animal agriculture upon Australia and the world really, you know, mass yeah. commercialised sort of, you know, industrial scale animal ag agriculture, there's there's a lot more people that should be getting involved, you would think, than just a contingent of AR. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And vegans, but it's, again, another squandered opportunity. Okay, so getting back, I'm, I'm getting back to my pettier examples of like on mm -hmm. a on a rally to rally basis of how things can go go awry. Do you think there's a way for non AR scenes to make little adjustments, like change the fucking barbecue or something like that, and work and thus and therefore work in union with AR activists, or do you think that that Everyone needs to to um, adopt these kinds of principles on a broader level, like consistent anti-oppression, and change their minds before they're ever going to be able to work better with each other. I guess people adopting consistent anti-oppression into their politics would be great, but maybe <laughs> I think that's might be a little bit ambitious at this point. Um, but I would say, like something that I guess confuses me a little bit is when it when it comes to having something like a barbecue that's um you know where you're cooking like uh the flesh of cows and pigs etc like you know we're talking like one meal for 
an event that's supposed to be a political event. And I, I don't really see like, you know, regardless of whether people want to be vegan outside of that, um, I don't see why it's such a big ask to, um, you know, not be serving animal flesh at an environmental event. Yeah. Yeah, or, or at <laughs> no, least at least not animal flesh that is coming from colonial animal agriculture. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So, they're, they're, yeah, and these, these are pretty logical things to me, yeah, particularly if you want to embrace that kind of union and, 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 and foster a climate of, you know, of, of mutual trust <laughs> and to get people working with each other. Yeah, and, and oh, oh, sorry, just one, one more point I was going to make. I, I think the animal rights movement, so one of the reasons that I really like the idea of there being like a stronger union here and the animal rights movement not being so separate is I think that, there's certain skills that I've seen from people in animal rights that I haven't seen. Um, <clears throat> like I think there's, we have skills, very specific skills that we can offer to other movements. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're, we're good at, you know, getting into places uh, covertly, for example. <laughs> you, you are. <laughs> That's a big yes. part of what we do. <laughs> No, very good at the disruption stuff. Yes, you, it's a it's a it's a real talent. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm talking about dis- disruption, but also um, stuff that doesn't get publicised, which I won't like, or um, not not so much that it doesn't get publicised, but it's more covert, you know. I've seen certain animal rights activists, I won't name names, but do a better job with someone like Avi Yemeni, a better and more controlled job of engaging with this flog and, and making him look like a ghost than I've seen from most anti-fascists, you know. I, I, I've i really appreciated that. Yeah, so uh, that's I guess that's another thing that I that I would want anti-fascists to know is like we get these these um, nationalist people sometimes turn up to our, uh, like our, um, protests as well because they they don't like them either (laughs) they don't they don't like us either because um yeah like I said I do think that um veganism or like wanting to dismantle the system of animal agriculture is a threat to their um to their values what's up with these right-wing losers who go to (laughs) AR things with a steak in their mouth Um, have you ever had that? Have you ever had some flog stand in front of you? Is that a devastating <laughs> blow to you? <laughs> we did. I do remember this is quite long ago, back when I was doing street outreach. We did have some guy come up. He was eating like raw meat in front of our protest. And I could just tell every bite he was hating it so much, but he was just like, <laughs> no, nah, i got to make, make my point. i got to show those vegans. Like, you're only hurting yourself, bro. I know. I'm, he's going to feel so sick <laughs> afterwards. Um, so, yeah, we see some cringeworthy stuff like that sometimes. And, I mean, there's no point in getting upset about the uh, getting upset at people doing stuff like that um, because I think that there's something, you know, there's a, there's a deeper problem going on. <laughs> if somebody's doing something like that. They've got to get right with themselves yeah. their best idea for how to engage in issues is to come out holding a raw blade steak in their fucking teeth standing in front of you. Because <laughs> when I look at those people approaching AR types, I just think to myself, there's something in them that sees AR activists as so 
so foreign and alien to them that that's their best way of engaging with someone that they disagree with. And I, I almost feel like there's this desperate yearning to know more about you, <laughs> you know what I mean, but they can't do it, so they just have to respond to weird uh, symbolic gestures that can't be enjoyable for them. No one yeah. wants to ask how much of a meat eater you are. You don't want to be walking around doing that in front of people. Yeah, I'm like I'm not really sure what's going on in someone's head when they come and do that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, okay, so um, on that note, you know, we've been talking about communication breakdowns and mm-hmm. such, but why don't we get some stuff clear in uh, layperson's terms? What misconceptions do you notice coming up regularly about veganism and the goals of the animal rights movement? by the general left or activist scene. Yeah, so um, a couple of things I'd say is I think that people tend to think of veganism as being like a lifestyle choice or just a diet. And um, I think the reason why people think that, well, I would say that veganism is not a lifestyle choice. It's a That's like saying feminism is a lifestyle choice, you know. It's a political stance against the oppression of of someone that's not you, you know, like in this case, it's animals. And I think the reason why people see it as a diet or lifestyle is because veganism has been co-opted by the wellness industry and been co-opted by capitalism. And And the wellness industry is a, is a very capitalist thing in and of itself, isn't it? So I think to the average person, if you say what, like, what do you think a vegan looks like? They're going to imagine probably a white woman who does yoga and drinks green smoothies or something like that. (laughs) But that's like, that's kind of ignoring the radical roots of veganism. And, um, you know, so veganism, even though the, the terminology has been around, I think since the 1940s, I want to say, so the word vegan, but that's not when when the politics originated. So there's been like, I think that's a common misconception that veganism originated with white people, but reality is white culture tends to be pretty anti animal. Really white culture tends to be more about exploiting animals, but some, some Mm. version of veganism has existed in many different cultures, like all across the world for, um, thousands of years. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of like uh, these days um, one of the fastest demogra- uh, fastest growing demographics of vegans is black Americans and a lot of them have said that it's like a way to get back in touch with their roots, with their culture, and it can be a way to like empower their people, which is very different from this um, wellness industry version of veganism that most people get sold, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe it is that such that the wellness industry um, is is the most prominent because it's the most profitable. Yeah, for sure. And I think that there's a lot of people that um, come to veganism through that and some of them stay in that mindset, which could be why the animal rights movement is such a mess sometimes. Um, mm. But a lot of people – so. So I want to just like give a mention to veganism, veganism for health. So that's something that's been like, I guess it's kind of been criticized, but um, I have heard that it's something that's quite important within the black community being like, because um, 
and and um, I'm sorry that this is like a little might be a little bit um, US centric, but um, it's sort of been a way to empower the community because they have often. Uh, like for example, positioned in places where they don't have access to any plant foods. So um, being able to find ways to, uh, you know, access healthy plant foods has been the work of a lot of black vegans. And that's something quite radical to be able to reclaim their health in a system that doesn't um, want them to be healthy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, because if non-vegan food is 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 the product of the the this you know industrial scale you know global animal agriculture uh, you know sector, then uh, it stands to reason that capitalism you know has made it the cheapest or easiest to access. So a big part of the work, I suppose, of changing the diet of people or making other diets more accessible is developing other sectors, I suppose, right? Something to remember is that animal agriculture is very heavily subsidised. It shouldn't be okay. cheaper to buy meat than it is to buy plant foods. Because, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. because it's more like it it, it requires more inputs, more resource input. So, mm. um, yeah, it's only because of the sub like the subsidies and, and that's why something like, you know, McDonald's is so cheap even though it's this very like low quality meat. Um, yeah. So I, I want to talk about veganism as well. This is something that I think it's important to like come into the misconceptions conversation. So mm. I like to think of veganism as being part of a broader conversation about food justice. So of course it's like justice for animals, but it's also justice for like the people that are impacted by this system of industrial animal agriculture. So, um, Mm. for example, we can talk about things like environmental racism. So, um, that is proximity to factory farms leading to things like runoff, um, from like effluent ponds usually means that the air quality in this area is going to be so poor that sometimes people have health problems. And of course, these are often communities of color or black communities that are tend to be in closer proximity to these places. Um, yeah. Yeah. So these are, these are conversations we're very ready to have regarding mining, Yeah, but perhaps we should be having them regarding animal agriculture as well. You're saying. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um, also, um, want to briefly talk about like slaughterhouse workers. So slaughterhouses are notorious for, you know, worker rights violations and also for hiring undocumented immigrants who are, of course, more vulnerable to these worker rights violations because they don't, um, you know, if they're undocumented, they're obviously, like, needing to keep this job to stay in the country. And, um, yeah, they're... Betty, I, I have a mate who was working at um, Cedar Meats. Oh, right, um, yeah, in, Cedar in, Meats. In Unbelievable conditions that they work in. The unfucking believable conditions. They are denied watches and clocks and mm. natural light, so that they're not told. They basically have to work 
beyond the end of the shift until there's a, you know, a certain amount of product has been reached. It's absolutely unbearable conditions for workers and, and you know, they heavily rely on, um, you know, migrant workers and what have you who don't have any other options. So, yeah, I, yeah. even here, you know, that's, that's it's terrible conditions. Yeah, they're, they're dangerous workplaces for a lot of reasons. Um, and, you know, I just think we want to remind people that we're in the midst of a global pandemic that came, that originated in animals, you know, and I think we need to like start having a think about the relationship that we have with animals. Because if we look at at a lot of the um, viruses over the past, um, uh, you know, I don't know, say 40 years, most of them originated from animals. They jumped from, and these intensive farming operations are such a good place for this to spread because you've got all these sick animals like, um, you know, put together in a small space that have very similar genetics. So it's just able to spread throughout, you know, an entire shed of pigs, for example, and then jumps from jumps onto the workers. Yeah. So, yeah, I, like – I guess what I'm trying to say here, I could I could go on about this for a long time, but I won't. <laughs> but there's so many ways, like even if you don't care about animals, which I think people should, but even if you don't, there's so many ways that humans are oppressed by the system of animal agriculture as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah on so many levels. <clears throat> So, all right, so there's some of the misconceptions, but, you know, I, I suppose one thing I regularly note from non-AR activists, I mean, this is a symptom of what a lot of other people who are, seem a bit daunted and intimidated and pissed off by veganism or AR in, in general, but there's a lot of people who seem to take the very existence of radical vegans or AR people as a personal attack. You know, they're, they're quite insecure just at the presence. So I imagine that people are insecure at the presence of AR comrades behind, beside them at, at rallies. Do you, do you know what I mean? Do you find that frustrating? Yeah, I know what you mean. So I think um, the the existence of vegans and there's vegans in many different communities and, and cultures is sort of it's – it's proof or it challenges like the common narrative, I guess. It's proof that we can be healthy and thriving without having to consume the flesh of others. And I think that kind of goes against um, what most people have been raised to believe. So that might be why it's a bit threatening. And maybe people aren't ready to include that in their political scope or they're not ready to widen their scope in that way, I guess. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, at, at the same time, I suppose there's some painful AR activists yeah, I've seen them over time. You you talked about some of them before as single issue uh, activists or single issue vegans. Like you know, they aren't consistently anti-oppression. Uh, perhaps not very good on certain human rights issues like racism or transphobia or or, or, or what or, or what have you, and the, I suppose they can also contribute to that kind of at loggerhead situation. Um, yeah, but you know, through knowing you and through listening to you, I've been able to learn about some of that nuance and that 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 you know. Animal rights or vegan radical veganism is not a monolith any more than any other sphere of activism. Can you can you tell me about some of these single issue activists? You mentioned them earlier. Can you tell me about that and some of the difficulties you've had with them? Yeah, so I've had a lot of problems with this type of person. Um, <laughs> so I think there's a lot of people that 
sort of get involved with animal rights activism for the wrong reasons. And I'll I'll give a few examples. So I think like cis men in particular, I see some of them coming into this movement because the animal rights movement, it's mostly made up of women, non-binary people. And I see that I think a lot of cis men come into the movement a bit opportunistic about that. And um, then you sort of see... um, so the, you kind of see, I think, some of them are outliving a bit of like a hero fantasy here. So there's something oh, yeah, that we yeah. talk about. I, I think this this terminology probably doesn't make it outside of um, animal rights spaces, but we talk about human saviorism. So this is this kind of <laughs> like maybe maybe you've seen this type of activist um, where they're sort of like framing themselves as a hero for the animals, you know, the voice for the voiceless, which is totally ignoring the agency that animals have in their own liberation. And, um, you know, because like animals are resisting their captivity as well. It's not just like we're here to save them from you know, we're the good humans here to save them from the bad humans. You know what I mean? Oh, I see what you mean. Like as in, as in nobody, animals included, is is too enthused about being locked up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, and yeah, yeah. We see like, you know, if you watch any slaughterhouse footage, you see the animals fighting back. Like they don't so, – so that's what we say. They, they are agents of their own liberation. And sometimes animals do escape. We see stories about – you know, a cow escaping a slaughterhouse and then going to live out the rest of her life with a, you know, herd of wild bison or something. That I think there was a story oh, really? like that. That's amazing. Yeah, but, like, it's, it's like we need to think of animals as um, as individuals that have agency. And so that's mm. why, like, so human saviorism is, it's like white saviorism, you know, this um, kind of paternalistic idea that, uh, you know, I'm saving you rather than... Um, you know, you're saving yourself and I'm being like an ally to you in doing that. It's a really annoying thing when you're standing in the same field as someone and there's a lot of activists who for for one way, for one reason or another, uh, you know, have to have to hide some of their identity but work extremely hard and so it can be very frustrating to see someone in a very public, with a very public profile, you know, in the same sphere of activism, perhaps doing less than you but certainly making a real spectacle <laughs> out, of, out of how sad and how affected they personally are by it, you know, like yeah. the performative tears and what have you can get pretty sure. frustrating and and they're really they're really centering themselves as a hero rather than focusing on you know it's the animal rights movement we should be focusing on who's the marginalized group here and and in this case we're talking about animals so it shouldn't be yeah um but a couple of other things that um i'd say about that so one of the reasons why i think the animal rights movement um is attracting a lot of what's the word shitheads I guess <laughs> um yeah. is that I think technical that, term yeah that's I guess so I think animals are a marginalized group who isn't going to call them out on their shit you know mm. <laughs> so they're, yeah. they're a very easy group to kind of like speak over or speak for yeah um, whereas if you know if you try to do that in an anti-racist movement like as a white person for example like of course, you'd you'd get told to take a seat, but um, 
Yeah, you know, I do. I have done stuff. I mean, a lot of it's just content or comedy or what have you, or, or shit stirring. Um, you know, at the expense of, of, of specific alt right names in the field of anti fascism. But at the end of the day, I am someone who has my name on a fucking Facebook page and what have you. Yeah. And and, and you know, so putting myself out there as an identity. But you know, I have to. I, I do, and I have to temper that. You know, with a with a kind of a conceptualization of myself as just being a cog in a healthy functioning anti fascist machine. You know, I was like, I'm only doing one specific job, and that might be the foghorn thing. But that doesn't fucking mean shit unless I work with researchers and work with activists and work with organisers and you know what I mean and work with all different yeah. kinds of people. You can't do anything successful unless you do all of that. But also, I'd better fucking be like that because there's. You know, there's there's people who will fucking call my shit out. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? If I don't do that properly, whereas that doesn't, that's not so much the case, maybe, I guess, with AI. Yeah, and I mean, like, in animal rights, of course, we've got people calling out people on that shit. Yeah. But, yeah. but th- they can always just be like, oh, no, this is what the animals want. Or it's like, you know, <laughs> they can just say yeah. something because it's, it's not the animals' um speaking and yeah I mean I know what you mean it is it is a bit of a hard balance when it comes to like attaching your own face and name to your activism I think there's like um I think you just got to stay humble if you're doing that as an ally you know if you're not um, part of the marginalized group that you're helping to fight for um yeah so uh, just one more thing that I'll say about like these single issue vegans is often they have no criticism of capitalism or they support vegan capitalism. So they're not, they kind of have this view that it's like, if we just convince everyone to go vegan, then animal agriculture will cease to exist. But Mm. of course it is a lot more complicated than that. And that's something that I've learned a lot more about over the years I've been involved with this. Um, But yeah, I think, I think we need to, uh, of course, like convincing people to go vegan is like, I think it's it's part of it, but we need to have a bigger scope than that. We need to be attacking the industries and attacking like the wider systems that are allowing this to exist the way it does. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk specifics then. Yeah. Let's get down to brass tanks here. Let's talk a couple of particular particular idiots or idiotic groups. And I don't. Look, I don't mean to make you representative <laughs> in this for shit cringe <laughs> vegan personalities, that, that not at all, but, again, given that we're, you know, I, I would like to think we're having a conversation about nuance and what have you and about, you know, like, like debunking the idea that, that radical veganism is a monolith. So, you know, it's a good chance for non-AR types to see um, that. So yeah. what, what about Joey Carbstrong? Okay. Going on there. I think Joey Carbstrong is an excellent example of the human savior thing that I was talking about before. So um mm. I've seen some some very like cringeworthy things of him. So just um like he is um like often you will see him posing inside like some animal facility like very much with himself at the center of the of the frame yeah and yeah I think that sort of thing is really cringeworthy also like Joey Carbstrong 
Yeah, man. I, I probably shouldn't go into any specifics, but I have heard some mm. things about him being a bit a bit sleazy towards a few people over the years as well. And okay. um, so I want to talk about hero worship quickly. So there are a lot of, there are a few figures in the animal rights movement. I, Joey Carbstrong's definitely one of them who's kind of got this um, hero-like status and a very cult-like following. And I think that allows him to get away with a lot of things that he probably shouldn't. And, um, you know, like uh, his his followers will really defend anything he does wrong because he's got this kind of hero status. You know, yeah, so that- whenever I see anyone in any field of, of 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 activism really lean in too hard without really con- seeming to check it on the idea, you know, I'm the person that's going to save, insert issue here. You know, when you see someone lean too eagerly into that, it's an immediate red flag, isn't it? You know, if you don't see someone conceptualising it, if you see someone who's like really, really happy to to position themselves as the saviour of that movement, it's immediately sus, isn't it? Big question mark. Yeah, for sure. I like it seems just very kind of ego-based, I guess. You know, he was trying to have a debate with Avi Yemeni. Oh, yeah. But I was oh. pretty much agreeing with Avi okay, on okay. most of Avi's stuff about <laughs> Avi's, you know, opportunistic alt-right grift, you know? Like, That's he's something. like, oh, I'm happy to debate veganism with you, but I agree with you on everything else, bro. Yeah, what the yeah. Fuck? Actually, I, I meant to bring that up. So I saw a video that Joey did where he was – he said something like Joey Carbstrong versus um, anti-vegan Avi Yemeni, and it's like okay, like I don't. Mm. I think Avi Yemeni. I think there's more to him than just being anti-vegan. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I watched this video <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, okay, maybe Joey's like this is a perfect opportunity to bring up. Like to me, I see that as an opportunity because. Um, Avi Yemeni, uh, the big protests that we did last year where we um, shut down multiple slaughterhouses at the same time and we blocked off the intersection in Melbourne, you remember that one? Um, yes. So Avi Yemeni turned up to that towards the end <laughs> um, to, you know, get try and get his footage and all of that. And so that's what Joey was making a video in response to. And mm. a lot of the things that Joey said in the video was like, oh, yeah, you know, I actually agree with the guy. I quite like the guy, except for when he talks about, um, you know, eating animals. Why don't me and you have a live debate? We can have it on your YouTube channel. We can have it on my YouTube channel. Keep it completely respectful, brother. I mean, I actually like you quite a lot. I just think that you're completely uneducated on this topic in particular. You might know a lot about politics, but you don't know what you're talking about in this scenario. Like, well, dude, you had an opportunity here to bring up, like, uh, the relationship between fascism and eating animals and instead you chose to say that you agree with him on most things apart from the fact that he eats animals, you know? And yeah. that, uh, yeah, so that just, um, that really uh, sums up for me, like, <laughs> that Joe is a 
a lost cause, I guess. <laughs> I mean, he has a been for a while, but that. Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, if you can't, if you don't understand that it, it, the heart of someone like that is an is an sheer opportunism in it, sort of counting, you know, positioning of themselves as like an alt right superstar, like as in Harvey will jump on whatever the current big issue is, and it doesn't matter what it is, just whatever is seen to be the most conservative thing. He'll lift his talking points for more astute alt right equivalents overseas, and then he'll go and attack you for it and if you you know if you can't see that there's no getting on board with rvm because he doesn't need to be on board with anyone he just needs to get cool videos then you're not you're not doing this he's not he's not doing anyone any favors old mate joe is he yeah. Yeah. So I think another reason, something else I see from single issue vegans, like this is the defense that they use. They'll say veganism is just about animal rights. We need to uh, invite everyone into the movement. And they, they're they saying that in terms of like, oh, you know, we have to invite right-wing people in as well. We can't be excluding people from the movement. But the thing is what happens when you do that is what kind of movement do you get left with? Because, yeah. you know, people that are from a marginalised group don't want to be around people like that. So they're going to step away from the movement and then you get you end up being left with this very white-centric, male-centric movement. And I think that's part of the reason why animal rights has such a bad reputation because uh, among other social justice movements because I, the mainstream movement has allowed that kind of ideology to exist within it and that's something we need to be fighting. Yeah, yeah. Because let's... Sorry, yeah. oh, I was just going to say because like right wing politics is not compatible with the goal of animal liberation. I just wanted to make that point. Another flog who seems to have taken a hard right turn lately, um, you know, Corona seems to have had everyone online looking at far too much stuff. And for a lot of people, that's been some pretty iffy shit. Um, Specifically, I'm talking about Freely the Banana Girl. Never really been, I, I imagine, the, the poster child for. Uh, veganism that you would you would have hoped for, <laughs> really is um, is is has had some pretty cringe moments over the years, and seems to be more like a lol cow for 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 the Daily Mail and right wing people and what have you more than anything. But can you tell me about what's going on with Freely and why on earth did Freely just make a turn recently <laughs> into being like an anti BLM pro Candace Owens? person i'm never going to be bullied into posting what you want me to post like a lot of the vegan pages were i just see these black squares and people i, I just know they're not being authentic what's going on there yeah okay so freely the banana girl to me she kind of like is the epitome of the worst of the wellness industry the worst of the vegan wellness industry so <laughs> yeah. she was really huge in 2016 when i first went vegan and um, her kind of thing was like she promoted this high fruit diet and um, a lot of people, uh, she had a very kind of cult-like following, like a lot of people were really into this type of diet she was promoting, but a lot of people didn't um, last as as vegans on her diet because it's just very difficult for most people to, you know, be eating that much fruit because... Um, yeah, that's that's a whole other thing. I won't go too much into that. She's always been very fat phobic. So she's always saying like, you know, you eat like this and you'll look like me. And this yeah. is, you know, um, that's just really excluding a lot of people from the movement. And it's um, 
it is really um, erasing the diversity of people that are vegan as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think she's been quite irrelevant for a long time. Like I haven't really followed what she's been up to. Uh, and then just every now and then I see her pop up again because she said something really awful. Like yeah, I think yeah. I remember she said some transphobic stuff. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but I remember her being talked about for that. And then just recently she has been um, sharing Candace Owens videos and yeah, I haven't actually like watched her videos on this, but it's just the usual kind of yikes. And the thought that people might be thinking that that is like representative of the animal rights movement is something that really sets us back as well. Yeah, how embarrassing, hey? You wouldn't want yeah. to be associated with this flog for fucking, yeah, to save your life, hey? Yeah, it was a cringest video. She's sitting there, <laughs> she's sitting there in like a like workout gear on a fucking medicine ball, <laughs> bouncing up and down, like yeah. while fucking slagging off the, the, you know, George Floyd, fucking rest in peace. It, yeah. Like, incredible. Who the fuck are you, you arsehole? Yeah, you wouldn't want to be associated with this prick to save your life, would you? Yeah. Um, well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another loser. Um, yeah. Thanks, Freely. Um, w- one more group that I mentioned, and we mentioned them at the start, um, Anonymous for the Voiceless. Um, they're the people who stand in the anonymous masks with the TVs on the street corners uh, talking to people. Um, you said street outreach and talking to people about animal agriculture and so on and so forth. Um, what's going on there? Okay, so Anonymous for the Voiceless was, it, they started up in Melbourne, but they became a sort of global organisation, mm. um, setting up chapters all over the world in many, many different countries. And their model kind of seems to be um just make as many chapters as possible that makes us the most successful and I heard a good criticism of them that what they're doing is kind of like replicating colonization everywhere they go and um because it's like you go to a country that's not an English-speaking country but you have an organization whose name is in is is in English it's like you what makes you think that um, you know how to speak to the local people of a culture that you're unfamiliar with. And yeah. I, I think that that's really important that local people know how to, how to speak to their own people and they know how to uh, raise these issues in their own communities. And that's why something like Anonymous for the Voiceless, just they they think that they've got a formula that is universal, but more and more people around the world are rejecting them. Like there's been over the years, there's been a series of kind of like mass walkouts of chapters saying we're not part of anonymous for the voiceless anymore. We're now going to do our own thing. So another thing I find the fact that they're called anonymous is really like inaccurate because they're all about the celebrity veganism. Like Joey (laughs) Cowan's not anonymous at all. They're like, they have their, they're a very cult-like organization. Like their um, their leaders are also, you know, can't be questioned, and they are certainly not anonymous. Yeah. And you know, what? even the term "voiceless," so I got a whole, an issue with their entire name. So "voiceless" kind of implies it's again like framing animals as victims 
with no voice. It's like animals, again, they have a voice. It's just that we're not listening. Like animals have ways to communicate that they don't like what is happening to them. So yeah. to call them to call them voiceless, I think is really like um, paternalistic, you know. It's really like okay. um, Yeah. 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 So um yeah, but also they're cult leaders. So Anonymous for the Voiceless, they have gone out of their way to maintain that they are single issue and that they do not care about anything else. Yeah. So every time an issue comes up, like any type of social justice issue, they will use that as an opportunity to co-opt that for animal rights. And mm. um, without any kind of empathy for the other movement. Yeah, you no know? solidarity, nothing. Yeah. No solidarity yeah. at all. So this has like been something, you know, they've kind of like caused their own downfall by mm-hmm. insisting on being like that. And they they had someone running their social media who they actually fired just in the past couple of weeks because he was causing um, a lot of controversy and just causing more and more people to leave the organisation. And they fired him, but it's kind of like too late. (laughs) Like nobody's going to. Yeah, they've got their reputation now. Yeah, Yeah, as long as they remain how they are. Yeah, totally. I I think it's getting a little bit harder in activism to actually be um, siloed off. You know what I mean? As in the, the, yeah. the, the people want to participate in different issues, particularly when you, you know, you look at, at, at countries like the US, which appears to be having, you know, appear to be having an uprising and what have you. People want to participate in other fields of activism. People want to get together. And anyone going, you know, trying to co-opt everything into this one issue, it's it's just, it seems to be flying less and less. Um, yeah. And also Guy Fawkes masks are fucking cringe. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. You know, you got to put them down. I mean, I say that shit now. You know who wears that shit now? Is a fucking anti-lockdown kooks and QAnons uh. and shit. Like, that's <laughs> fucking terrible. Don't do it. You know, shout out to my anonymous, anons, like actual legit old school ones who are, do all the hacky hacky stuff. That's very nice. But the masks are cringe. <laughs> Well, yeah, <laughs> see, Anonymous from, for the voices, they co-opted that aesthetic from Anonymous, the hackers. Um yeah, and I don't know too much about about the original Anon- anonymous, but I just know that's where it was co-opted from. Betty, who? Okay, so let's set the flogs aside. It's yeah. good to talk about, and it's good to know. It's good for people to know that 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 that, that there are flogs there and why they're flogs. But who are some good activists or groups that people can follow and read from in the in the AR or radical veganism space? Yeah. Um, so just before I, I want to say that most of the, the groups I'm going to talk about here are kind of international. I think that the Melbourne animal yep. rights scene at the moment, we've gone through a lot of changes in the past few years since I've been involved. And I think we're kind of in like a transitional period right now. So I would, I wish that there was like a local group that I could kind of point people to, but let's just say we're kind of in the process of of trying to figure something out, but I'm taking okay. inspiration from these international groups. So I'm going to like give them as an example, cause I really love the work they do. Yep. So, um, the food empowerment project is a really great, uh, food justice organization. And so they talk about animal rights issues, but they also talk about all kinds of issues related to, uh, food justice. Um, so if you want to like know about more about food justice, that would be like the place that I point people to is food empowerment projects. 
Okay. Um, so to follow on social media, Vegan Voices of Color is a really good page. So that's run by two black vegans and they just share different perspectives from different vegans of color. So it's kind of like a, a good place to find a lot of different um yeah, I guess it's a good way to kind of combat this like white centric view of veganism. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um I really admire the work of someone called Brenda Sanders who has um she's a black vegan living in the USA and has done a lot of really good work on food justice within her own communities. So mm-hmm. I, I find that kind of work like really inspiring as well. The Vegan Rainbow Project is a group based in Germany who I met when I went there last year. And they are sort of working on forming alliances with the queer feminist movement and the animal rights movement. So they, they've been to a lot of the pride marches and they kind of turn up as the Vegan Rainbow Project and they're trying to yep. address. So I guess they're kind of trying to combat like rainbow capitalism at the same time as well trying to like get back to the radical roots of pride and um yeah all of that um okay so chilies on wheels is another good one so they um they've uh basically like providing free vegan food for people and they've had historically had quite a good alliance with the black lives matter movement in terms of just like bringing down food for people to eat because we all know when you're on the ground at a protest for a long time it's like that's one of the best things that you can do for people (laughs) i think is being like imagine if someone just handed you some free vegan food you'd like that's that's a great thing to keep um the momentum going totally yeah um so yeah oh there's also the palestinian animal league because i think um Okay, I'm not going to, like, get started on Israel, but there's a lot of, like, um, vegan washing when it comes to Israel as well. So I think it's better to look at the Palestinian perspective on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah you're talking about the, the, the I suppose, the, the high rate of veganism in the IDF and what have you, yeah? Yeah. And how that, that might be promoted at the expense of talking about the politics of, yeah. of, of Israel as regards Palestine. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. that that is a, a whole other thing to get into. But it's a whole um, other thing to get into, indeed. <laughs> but I just wanted to acknowledge that it is a thing and um yeah. and and radical vegans don't support the Israeli occupation, you know? So I wanna make yeah. that clear. <laughs> I wanna make that clear too that I don't either. Yes. yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, okay, good. And anything else to plug, Betty? Anywhere where people can read more about animal rights activism or consistent anti-oppression, anything else to plug for yourself, anything? Um, okay, so one thing that I think would be really cool for people to watch, even if you're not an animal rights activist, there's a new documentary that's come out recently. It's called The Animal People and it's on Netflix. And I think it's a really good example. So that is about the Shaq campaign and Shaq st- stands for Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty. And it was about this really big campaign that was done sort of in the early 2000s. And it was, I think it's a great example of activists going up against this huge capitalist institution and the ways, the tactics that they used for that actually were effective. And watching this documentary, I like, I don't know, I won't give spoilers or anything, but I think Mm. it's, it's, um, it made me both hopeful, but also like, um, 
the opposite of hopeful. <laughs> I've lost my words here. But um, yeah, <laughs> not hopeful. I'd say disheartened <laughs> at the same time because yeah, it kind yeah, of makes yeah. you think, wow, these people were actually starting to damage this industry that they were going up against. Oh, wow. But in the end, the state just came in there and, and crushed them and basically saved this corporation. So just in case anyone has any um, doubt about corporations and the state being in bed together, like. Together, yeah, right. Yeah, okay, but, then. Well, that's so, and that's called the animal people, isn't it? The animal people, yeah. Um, I also want to, I think this will be a good talk for um, your particular audience. So there's a great talk from someone called Christopher Sebastian, who's a, so he has a blog. There's a lot of really good uh, articles on his blog, but he has a, a YouTube video called, the title is White Meat, Eating Animals and the Alt-Right. So that talks a lot about the the tie-ins with kind of eating animals and this nationalism and how that's very like closely intertwined. Yeah. And I guess yeah. how, how veganism can be part of, you know, a revolutionary perspective of pushing back against that nationalism. As long as you're coming from the perspective of consistent anti-oppression, I guess. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, perhaps I can put some of these links into the episode description. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you and I'll grab those. So, I've got so a, couple, can... a couple more, but I think it's not useful to just read out a list on a podcast, but maybe um, you can put them <laughs> in, the, in the show notes. Yeah, totally. I'll put them in the notes and then anyone who wants to have a bit of a read or a watch can click through to those or be reminded. So look in the description for the episode. And Betty, I want to thank you so much for your time. It's really good to have chats like this, I think. I think that it's really good to to talk about ways that we can get different streams of activists with really useful people within them, really staunch, dedicated people within them, get them together. And I think models like consistent anti-oppression offer good ways to do that. So thank you, Betty, and thanks for your time, mate. Yeah, thanks so much for hosting me. If you enjoy the Pork and Feed the Birds, please leave us a nice review on whatever podcast app it is that you listen to the Pork and Feed the Birds. Please share it, like it, react to it. Please support me on Patreon dollar or two, whatever you can. Clams, I would appreciate your clams. Not more important than any of the many causes that I talk about on this podcast or elsewhere on my platforms. Uh, But nevertheless, if you can spare the clams, I would love the clams. I would be forever in your debt. You would be my daddy. Patreon.com slash Tom Tanneke.